Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. There are 7 billion people in the world. We all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed. The History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Dress listeners, Halloween season is upon us. And I must say that for me personally, the phrase favorite horror movie is a bit of an oxymoron. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm in the same boat with you. I just, I, I, I think I've seen one that was so terrifying to me that I didn't sleep for like months and months and months after that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a fan of horror movies at all, actually. And it kind of started when I watched The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I was 18 years old. I literally slept in my parents' room on the <laughs> recliner for a week. I was so scared. I just don't like that feeling. I don't like being terrified. So I much prefer the campy, Halloween film genre that includes movies like Hocus Pocus, Adam's Family, Death Becomes Her, such classics. I love them. Fan or no fan of the horror genre, however, I was not going to miss the opportunity to have costume designer Lisa Jensen on the show for our fourth annual Halloween-themed episode. Yes, and just side note, Death Becomes Her is one of my all-time favorite movies. I might have just rewatched it for the bajillionth time last yeah, month. Yeah, I watch it every year. It's so good. So good. <laughs> Classic. So Lisa is now retired, but her career in film and TV spans 30-plus years. And one of her very first jobs in Hollywood was as the costume supervisor on A Nightmare in Elm Street. And you better believe that she has lots of creepy, crawly insights into what it was like to work on Wes Craven's now classic and iconic 1984 horror film. She's also going to share some fascinating tidbits about what it was like to work with figurative and literal rock stars throughout her career, like Anthony Hopkins and, you know, just this other gentleman named Mick Jagger. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> and I should preface this interview by saying that Lisa is very much a dear friend of mine. She's actually my mentor, the person who gave me my very first job on a movie set, and many more. I was her production assistant for a Kevin Costner film called Swing Vote that people probably have not heard of. Maybe you have. Anyways, we worked on six projects together, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But in general, this interview was just a treat for me in more ways than one. And I wager it's going to be a treat or a trick-or-treat, more on the treat side, for our Dress listeners. Without further ado, Lisa, welcome to Dressed. Lisa, welcome to Dressed. I'm actually sitting across from you in studio um, talking to you, so this is such a treat. And for me, too. Yeah. I've known you for many, many years, so this <laughs> makes it an extra treat for me. <laughs> and it was, I think, a few years ago, Sean and I are sitting with your husband, Ben, and yourself at your house, and you pulled out these Polaroids of a film that you had worked on called The Nightmare on Elm Street. Yes. And I was so intrigued. And then I came to find out this is one of your very first films, and I've been trying to get you on the show for a while now. <laughs> And we needed an episode for our Halloween. Very appropriate. <laughs> yes, and it just it it was a perfect excuse. So I'm so excited to have you here today to talk about that film. 
But before we dive into that, I want to get to know you a little bit more, introduce you and your incredible career to our listeners. That's great. Uh, You are one of the most creative people I know. How did you get into costume design? Is this something that you kind of got into in high school or college? What brought you to your craft? Uh, I had done a lot of other crafts, uh, which would include weaving. I knew how to sew. I did some pottery. I did some jewelry making. And I decided to go to college, or I was lucky enough to go to college at the Alfred University College of Ceramics. And where is that? That's in upstate New York. Okay. In the 70s. And I studied there for a few years, thought I learned enough, and uh, got a couple of teaching jobs in Toronto, Ontario, and uh, taught, worked in a basement studio, and just kind of said, what am I doing with my life? So I'd done some dancing. So I studied at the Toronto Dance Theater and did modern, gram modern dance and studied mime and uh, studied with Lindsay Kemp Theater, which was in town uh, doing a theatrical performance and they gave workshops. And I realized that the world was really quite bigger than just pottery. And I decided that now is the time that I wanted to move to New York City. And I had met a young man who was a magician. And he said to me, well, when you go to New York, could you, could you just, can you learn how to make those costumes with all the pockets in it? And then you can help me with my magician act. And I went, <laughs> what? The, well, that was kind of silly. So uh, I got to New York. I took classes at the Alvin Ailey School and quickly discovered I was not a dancer <laughs> by any means in a New York way. So I knew how to sew. I went to the public theater, New York Shakespeare Festival Public Theater, and walked into the costume department and saw they were building Coriolanus for Shakespeare in the Park. And it was this giant fantasy factory of costumes. And I was blown away. So I stayed there sitting on the bench until they decided that they would see me and they would look at my little sewing projects that I brought in and then hired me. Oh, that's wonderful. So So, how long did you do that? Because I had no idea that you had a career at Shakespeare in the Park in New York. Yeah, I worked worked at the public theater, which was my education in costumes, uh, for four and a half years. And making costumes, making costumes, making costumes. And I worked from sewing labels in costumes to doing more stitching. Then I ended up getting a draping table because I was like so interested in learning all the bits and pieces. Uh, I was a draper for a while, and then the dyer traveled on, so I became the dyer for about a year and a half. I worked in the millinery department, and I just learned everything. And because the public theater has nine theaters inside the public theater, plus the Shakespeare in the Park, two productions uh, a summer, and then also some of their shows that were Broadway shows that had costumes made there— I worked, I was able to work with a lot of really great designers, even though I was, you know, quite removed from them. So I got to watch how designers yeah. design theater. Yeah. And you know, my trainings, obviously, my early trainings in theater as well. And it's definitely, especially once you transition into film, which we'll talk about in a minute, it's a completely different type of training. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's very hands-on. It's also very immediate. Like you get to see your work come to fruition and you get to experience that live audience response and seeing mm-hmm. your work on the stage. There's nothing mm-hmm. quite like it. Yeah, but on the stage, it's very far away. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so then, okay, so you're in New York. What? And then in 1983, I believe, you make this huge leap, both geographically speaking and in your career, because you moved across the country to Los Angeles. And I'm wondering... What brought you to LA to pursue costuming and film and television? And what was your early career like? Well, it was yet another long and dreary winter in New York. And if anybody's lived in New York, you look at your, you, you walk in the, sl- the snow and you are about to take a step and go across when the light changes. And you end up many times stepping into at least six to eight to 12 inches of slush. And this was just a really long winter. And I had a friend who was taking a trip to visit a friend in Los Angeles and I tagged along and it was green. It was, it smelled beautiful. It was green. It's like 75 uh, degrees. <laughs> it, was, yeah, it was very, very warm. <laughs> and it was environmental. I just, I really was, was kind of done with New York. Now that New York had many more opportunities, but I just felt it was time to make a change. So I didn't move to LA right away, but uh, gave up my little tiny apartment, a six floor walk up and, uh, and packed it off and moved to Los Angeles. And with the energy that I had from uh, New York, just kind of the do anything, I can do anything kind of attitude, plus my ability to sew and my, my 1982 sewing machine that I knew would never let me starve. I moved to LA and uh, started off. And the first few things that I did were being a seamstress. And I believe one of your first projects, if not your first project, was on a horror film called The Supernaturals. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I, Confederate I, I, zombie uniforms. Tell me about what that first experience was like. Yeah, I, I had one telephone number. And, you know, it's all about contacts. I had one telephone number that someone gave me saying, let me give you a number. And it was to a, a young man named Mark Shostrom. And he was a special effects, uh, makeup effects designer. And I called him. Well, I don't have anything, you know, so kind of the normal thing. But then suddenly he was in a fix because he was working on this movie called The Supernaturals. And the costume designer on the movie was so caught up in all the other things, he had to clothe his zombies in Confederate uniforms that had been buried underground for a century and uh, had been burned and bloodied and torn apart. And they were coming alive out of their graves. And I was the gal. (laughs) (laughs) So did you do research for that? How did you how did you come up with these designs? Well, you, yes, research, yeah. quick quick research, but a few a few photographs from black and white photo, photos of dead Confederate soldiers and then the the stipulation of how they had to fit onto these zombie bodies. They weren't animatronics. They were human beings oh, okay. dressed as zombies so they could walk and move. And, oh, okay. Yeah. And then there were some, there were some that were just halfway buried and, you know, arms lifting up and stuff like that. So it, but it, it was more about the process of disintegration of clothing. And yeah. I had not, I'd done a bit of that in theater. And yeah. so I just kind of segued into that. And I, it was great. It was, yeah. I was on my first movie set. It was crazy. It was so much activity. The buzz, <laughs> the excitement. <laughs> so many people doing so many jobs yeah. and, and uh, doing them with such concentration. Not like theater, which is slowly walking to the final project and then giving it to the actors. And they then bring it to life. This was life constant, buzzing life. So I got the, I, got, I did the costumes. And uh, then I stayed on for a little while sculpting zombie chests. 
I think I was doing some chests and rib cages and stuff. And then got a call for another seamstress job on another movie, which was a cheerleader camp movie. <laughs> and then he did something for Bozo the Clown's presidential campaign. <laughs> yes. Yes. Like somehow my number got to, to Larry Harmon, who was who was the Los Angeles version of, of uh, Bozo. And he was dead serious to campaign against Ronald Reagan. So I met him. He wanted to do something that was very, very campaigny and very much in the Bozo world, but then slightly out of it. And so I did his running. And it was not long after that that you got the job on A Nightmare on Elm Street, um, which is, of course, the guiding light of today's conversation (laughs) um, on theme for this year's Halloween episode. As I've already said, I've wanted to have you on the show for a while. And the fact that you worked on this 1980s horror slasher flick that we all know at this point (laughs) um, was a perfect excuse to finally get you on here. So for the audience who doesn't know, maybe, what A Nightmare on Elm Street is, it's a 1984 supernatural slasher horror flick directed by Wes Craven that centers around these four teenagers who are haunted and even killed in their dreams. And the fact that they're killed in their dreams means they're killed in real life. And of course, this is all centered around this murderous villain, Freddy Krueger. I had no idea until I started researching it. It had a $1 million budget. It made $57 million, which is a runaway hit. It's still to this very day considered one of the greatest horror movies of all time. And this was one of the very first films that you worked on in Los (laughs) Angeles. First of all, how did you land this job so early in your career? Well, I, the costume designer is a woman named Dana Lyman. And I had, because of my sewing, uh, I had been called to work on a show that she was working on called Breakin', uh, which is a breakdance movie. I showed up a little late because I went to the wrong set, but I ended up going to that the right set, and she liked me. We liked each other. We I was kind of learning at that point. I learned a bit about what continuity is, which is just taking everything out of sequence that is shot in a film. So day one, day four, day 25, day 36, everything gets all mixed up. And, uh, but, but as you shoot it, you have to make sure that it, it uh, all fits back together when it's put in chronological order, (laughs) which I kind of understood and I thought I'd do it. But, but Dana had prepped uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street and she just gave me a call and said, will you come uh, take, and be at my costume supervisor. And I went... Costume supervisor? So you're like her right-hand <laughs> person, like the head of the department, yes. basically. <laughs> yes. Okay. Throw you right in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was in the days of uh, non-union. It wasn't... There wasn't big protocol on on how jobs were doled out and, and what experience was needed. It was kind of the department head's decision to hire whoever they felt was appropriate for the position. And she decided I was. And so in my head, I'm like, okay, you have this huge department, right? So usually when I work on a film, I, there's costume designer, costume supervisor, the assistant costume designer. Then you have your set costumers. You have your age dyer, your seamstress, your costume PA, and then some of your office costumers, but am I correct that it was just yourself and one other person <laughs> yes, it was in only... the entire department? <laughs> yes. So, so there was Dana and and myself and a PA. 
Named, which is a production assistant. Yeah, production assistant. And uh, there were three of us. <laughs> we and we do we did that happened a lot, but this was the that this is the way it was. And Dana's great. It was already designed. It was pretty much all set in motion. Uh, multiples were already made, and especially for Freddie because he goes through a lot of stunts and body burns and muck and horrible things. And she stayed on for a few weeks and then got another job. So then she left and. There was just the two of us. Was it just you on set, or did you have set customers? No, that was just the two of us. Are you serious? I'm serious. There were just the two of us <laughs> that ran the whole thing, running back and forth. We had our offices right at the set, and a lot of this was done on set. Although we did, okay. we, we did do bits and pieces on location, and I don't even remember the the wardrobe trailer. I think it was, I think it was more of a, just a horse trailer or something that pulled our clothes off. I'm trying to imagine this because that means that you were basically working like 24 hours a day or... (laughs) (laughs) Because set costumers and the supervisor, I mean, is trying to get you in order, right? So they're prepping for like the entire show, whereas set costumers are taking what you've prepped and like putting into action on set, but you're doing all of these things. Mm -hmm. While also learning gorilla costuming, basically, because then you're that means you're the set costumer. So you're doing sewing and you're doing aging dyeing and you're doing continuity. Yeah. The, a lot of the aging and dyeing were done before. Oh, but okay. there was where there was a lot of cleaning, obviously, as, yeah. as we'll probably get into. But a lot of it was already prepared and we just had to make sure that we had the right costumes on the people. But you're on set for the first time in front of the camera and actually having to interact with directors and actors. Do you remember what that was like? Were you confident because you'd already had that experience in the theater? Or do you remember, (laughs) like, if Wes Craven talks to you, did you remember, like, set etiquette? Like, how did you, you just got thrown in, it seems like. We did. And I don't, I I can't really even say that, I can't say it was magic, but there was a kind of camaraderie that everybody was just helping one another. And being a $1 million, I didn't even know that it was a million, which even back then was very little money. Everybody was just working as hard as they could and were really helping one another out. And yeah. Wes, as a leader, was amazing. He's like this gentle professor who has the mind of a crazy person. <laughs> he, can just, yes. he can just invent all these really bizarre things. Yeah. But his manner... It is so genteel. He's just, he's a, the sweetest thing on the planet. That's and really good was, to hear. And he was so happy to get his picture done, which which was amazing because then it turned into a giant franchise. Yeah. Yeah, just some facts about this film that I looked up is, so I didn't realize this, Freddy Krueger is actually named after one of his bullies. One of his childhood bullies. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, so it's like, okay, okay. Um, <laughs> you know, um, getting a little payback there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he also, I, I came to find out, really came up with the iconic uh, Freddy Krueger design in terms of the knives on the gloves mm-hmm. and then also the green and red sweater, I guess, yes. was his idea, too. Yeah, so. I think I think that this is something that was really brewing mm-hmm. with him for a long time. And again, because I wasn't part of the prep, I, I can't say how all of the ideas landed mm-hmm. to be realized in costumes and sets and, and things. But I knew that he was just bubbling with – it was his baby. It was yeah. his, his his creation. And he had all these really great people and a lot of people who were young in their careers because we were all pretty young back then who ended up becoming 
producers and designers and directors. Johnny Depp, and, and like Johnny his very Depp, first, first film or something. <laughs> it was his first film, first day on. In, oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, first time on set. Uh, Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so everybody was really just all working together. It yeah. was it was it was a very generous kind of feel. Yeah. So it wasn't the it didn't have the formality that movie sets do now. And there's a real need for formality on movie sets because there's so much activity and so many hours put in, but. This was the 80s. It was, yeah. It was a different Yeah, time. but it's also nice. I mean, you and I, when we first started, and we'll talk about this later, we did $10 million movies, and they just, there's a lot more interaction and camaraderie between the crew at those levels than mm-hmm. when you get up into, like, the really high echelons mm-hmm. and people, like, lose that the sight of their vision and right. why they're doing it. So, yeah. Um, we all would look out for one another and pick up, like, if, if a, you know, a grip forgot something, you know, we'd pick it and get it out of the way. Or if, if I left a bag of clothes there, it would be moved and I would be told where it is. I mean, so everybody was looking out for one yeah, another. Yeah, because today, if somebody touched your costumes, you would be very upset, I feel like. It's a very divi- <laughs> divided, like, divided line today. But yeah. um, So I read that over 500 gallons of fake blood were used for special effects makeup on the film. So for people who might not know, what are some of the specifics about working with blood? Because it's actually an art form in and of itself. Do you remember, for instance, collaborating a lot with special effects makeup? We shared blood, (laughs) which is a weird thing to say now. Yeah. (laughs) We shared blood. We all had different kinds of blood. The 500 gallons, I've never, I could only imagine it because we did some giant blood splashes. Each department has a different kind of blood because it serves a different purpose. And when blood, unlike real human blood, if you gush blood, it has to be a certain viscosity, it has to have a certain color, or else it it won't look real. If you have blood on a bruise, it has to be a certain color and density. And if you have blood on clothing, it has to be yet another color and density. So everybody had their own sets of blood. We'd share the blood. We try to not overlap the blood <laughs> because what is good on the skin isn't good on the clothes. What's good on a set, on a you know, bloody chair is not so good on a costume. So we, we kind of tried to watch out for one another. And there was a lot of washing. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. Bleach. And blood is ma- basically made of like sugar and, right? Or is there different yeah, formulas for back it? Back then, it was a lot of caro syrup. Yeah. And, and, and food dye. colorings and different kinds of dyes. It's gotten much more specialized. Now you can buy buy the stuff. But, but to get back to the 500 gallons of it, there's a scene in... Uh, the movie, which is shot on a gimbal stage, a gimbal room, which is a gyroscopic room. So as as uh, the character is being chased by Freddy and he's, she's being slashed at, she's dreaming. Her boyfriend is watching her, doesn't know what she's dreaming because he he's not he's awake, but he understands what's happening. And she she crawls from the floor to the wall to the ceiling, and he's reaching out to her. And then finally, at the end of that scene, she falls into the bed, into a hole in the bed, and then the bed gushes gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons 
of blood. <laughs> and that's real, what you call it, practical on set because today we're so used to CGI and all these after, like so many of like gunshot wounds and gunshots for now are like all CGI today. Yeah. But when you're doing it, you're talking about actual, a bed that she actually falls into that is actually gushing real blood. Yes, yes. So she falls into, <laughs> yes, she falls. She literally, all the, all this actress Gets, gets falls through a bed and then turns around and then it's all liquid. So yeah, no CGI, none. I as far as I know, there was absolutely zero CGI because CGI didn't become popular. I think it was first used in the seventies, but it was Star so Wars. <laughs> yeah, it was so it was so uncool. Yeah, and so everything was really practical. And then in the nineties, that's when CGI got much more uh, refined and was used. So this was all real. Every Every bit of slime and ooze and blood and snakes and centipedes and maggots. And were those real? Those were real. <laughs> they were all real. They were all real. I don't know real. if you There's... can do that today. Can you have maggots in a fake body today? On well, no, yeah, no, you have to have, unless you have a disclaimer that no maggots were were harmed in the making <laughs> of this movie, but... But we had we had some prosthetics, like so special effects, mechanical special effects makeup. We had a, a fake head, which we only shot from like under the nose up. And there a real centipede came out of a, a molded face that looked like the actress. But then we shot the actress so you could see a full face and her reaction. And we have a centipede, but it's a puppet. It's a it's a rubber puppet on her tongue that she sticks out. Then they cut it back and forth between the real centipede and then the fake centipede and then there was a scene that uh freddie takes and slashes his own chest to kind of i think it was his own chest but he slashes his chest and this yellow iridescent fluorescent ooze comes out and then these giant maggots come climbing out of the slashes and and, real maggots and they were real maggots they were a fake chest for that part of the scene and real hand that slashed through it and opened up the and the real maggots. And when these maggots were, I, I wasn't prepared. <laughs> Who I was be there prepared? doing doing making sure the costume was just hanging right on the around the the, the chest piece. And uh, they slashed it. I guess I didn't read the pages. They slashed it. These maggots came out. You shine a light on it. It makes the yellow ooze get brighter. And then the maggots, when they see light, start getting hyperactive. And then they start dancing. They start, they stick their heads out and they start, they just start wiggling. And I lost it. I actually stepped two steps backward and started to faint. <laughs> and I fainted against Wes Craven. <laughs> and he just said, are you okay? Are you okay? It's just movies. Are you okay? And, and his, his gentle voice and his wonderful manner just was like smelling salts. Right. I went, I went back to the maggots and I was not disturbed anymore. And it was the same day that we did snakes. <laughs> snakes in slime in a clothing bag with real actress standing in the snakes. Yeah, no CGI. I mean, I wonder if these actors have like horror nightmares still about this set or if, you know, <laughs> the fact that you're in the movie and obviously you have this experience, you see it all being made and you know, the magic maybe is gone a little bit for the fantasy of it all, but it just sounds terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And it's, I mean, now you would, if I went to a set and I would say I, I read a script and it was all this stuff. I know, I mean, I know it. every maggot would either be CGI or uh, mechanical. I would, so it's like, there's no, you know, it, 
the audience wouldn't know that. But but I, as a, a movie maker, was in the middle of a movie. Yeah. <laughs> Every day was being in the middle of a little segment of this nightmare. Yeah. It's so interesting, too, because when you're talking about him slashing, you know, just to give our listeners an idea of, of the behind the scenes, it's like when you do these spe- these on-screen special effects, practical special effects, you're prepared to do them multiple times. Mm-hmm. So were you prepared to do them multiple times or were there instances where it was like on the fly, he changed something? Um, did any of that happen? I think everything was really prepared, but because it was so low budget, it wasn't like, okay, let's clean them up and do it all over again. There was this collaboration that made it so you didn't have to do it over and over again for some odd reason. They, everybody kind of understood what they were going for and looking for. And I'm sure the editors had a lot, a lot, a lot of work yeah. to do. <laughs> but somehow the camera's eye was in the right place for the images that Wes wanted. Yeah. So I don't think we did two takes of the maggots. The actress standing in this giant bag of snakes. I mean, I remember her freaking out because she really had she had to step. I think she had to step out of the bag, whether that landed on the film or not. But so she had to be barefoot. She had to take a lot of deep breaths. We zipped her up into this clothing bag and then unzipped her, and and then the, the snakes came out. I mean it. She just, she, we just, everybody just did it and they did it <laughs> once. I mean, and then gallons and gallons of blood. You, uh, there's no cleanup for that. <laughs> Who is this maggot wrangler? Oh, gosh. Uh, was it props? <laughs> I I think that, no, I think that there was a special wrangler for creatures. There were goats, uh, <laughs> too. I remember there were goats and we had an animal wrangler. And we were in a sewer in downtown L.A., this underground, it was really wet and drippy and really, really actually pretty creepy without us being there. And we, for camera, we all had to disappear off to the sides so that the actress, it's the very, very beginning of the movie. And this actress is going down this thin corridor and there's a goat and the goat just didn't, it was creeped out too. <laughs> so we were all, the goat would run towards us. We'd make sure our hands weren't shown and we'd push the goat Back into the camera, <laughs> into the camera. <laughs> we just kept taking turns, kind of trying to wrangle it because it was untrained. But we did have somebody who was in charge of the critters. Yeah, yeah. Critters One, a, animal wrangler, listeners, is someone who takes care, wrangles the animals on set. Um, and there's lots and lots of rules today. I don't know if there was in the 1980s about <laughs> what you can and cannot do with animals and actually even with spiders and maggots. So, um <laughs> And then you also did, if I'm not mistaken, live burns on camera. Yeah, there's there was which is always his, terrifying. Yeah, which is always terrifying. So I had, again, I came from theater. If there was fire, it was usually a crackly sound, some tissue paper with some red light on it, <laughs> and you say that was fire. Well, this was a full body burn uh, where uh, a stunt person gets dressed up, and I I had never. I never watched these kinds of films, so I never really even knew what that was about. But a stunt person, stunt man in this case, gets dressed up. He's wearing gel to to protect his body. Then he's wearing Nomex to protect from the flame. Then he's wearing more gel on top of that. Mm -hmm. And then the costume is put on top of that. And then they put a, a burnable substance, I think it's a kind of alcohol, which burns cold, but still burns, and lights up and then... They light him, and then he starts running through the scene 
burning. Yeah, the stunt person, not the actor. (laughs) But the thing about burns, no matter how cold it might be, is that it, it, it robs all the oxygen out of uh, away from the body that's on burn. And it was a full body. It was from toe to head. Uh, all the arms, he's flailing, he's running. And uh, it was really frightening. <laughs> yeah, very, very scary. I've done, I think we did, we did a movie together, St. John of Las Vegas. I believe there was a full body was a burn, burn on that. Yeah. 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 It's just, it's really fascinating to watch. But then you realize, I think it was one of the makeup artist's husbands who was the stunt guy who was getting burned that day. It was like <laughs> terrifying. <It's> terrifying. <laughs> and they, terrifying. the stunt guys love it. They, they like do. live for it. Yeah. But, but they, scary. and they also, they, being a stuntman is, it seems like it's kind of a, you know, macho, crazy, I'll do anything kind of thing. They're incredible brother sisterhood. They take care of one another. They spot one another. They're so well-trained. Yeah. They're they're so well-trained and they know all the safety protocols. They know when to know when somebody's in trouble and not. And, and it was, it's a ballet, even though on film you see one person flailing around, burning to death. Mm -hmm. you, You, there's a whole group of people who are making sure behind that, that the person, scenes yeah, yeah making sure that person is completely safe yeah and costumes usually just hands off the garments to <laughs> to the stunt guys and they're they're responsible for getting them yeah. fire coated and up to yeah. code cuz you yeah. don't want I that think, responsibility i think actually at that point i was i was dipping it all in fire retardant oh my gosh <laughs> i didn't know <laughs> and i think that uh, the costumes were Age to get this really great, beautiful, greasy quality to mm-hmm. his costumes. I think they were uh, aged with a certain amount of grease, which is also flammable. So I, I was like, I, I was taking terrified. Every, yeah, I was terrified and taking every <laughs> note that I could, and and going to the special effects person over and, and the stunt people over and over and over again. Is this okay? Is this okay? Is this okay? <laughs> so yeah. Well, I feel like it's safe to say that after Nightmare, you might have caught the little bit of the costuming bug, perhaps. It sounds <laughs> yes. like a fantastic film to have worked on, especially yeah. to get this, like, full 360 experience. I mean, that's really how you learn to be a costumer is getting thrown in, and then you have to do all of these different jobs that would, under a bigger budget show, be delegated to different mm-hmm. people. So mm-hmm. I'm sure it was, like, a great mm-hmm. learning experience. Mm-hmm. You know, this is kind of the beginning of a long career um, in film costuming. And actually, in just three short years after A Nightmare on Elm Street came out, you were designing your very first film, which (laughs) is the 1987 cult classic Mannequin. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it stars Kim Cattrall of Sex and the City fame and Andrew McCarthy and James Spader, who had actually either the movie was kind of came out before or after, I'm not quite sure, but they had just been in Pretty in Pink together. And again, for those listeners who might not know, Kim Cattrall plays a department store mannequin who comes to life to help Andrew McCarthy's character become the best window dresser in New York City. And um, is it New York? Uh, well, we shot it in Philadelphia, but okay. the idea was a major metropolitan area. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, they fall in love in the process. It basically follows the very typical 1980s formula that I love that combines camp, fantasy, and romance. <laughs> There's a lot of really fun 1980s fashion in it worn by Kim Cattrall's character, but also the flamboyant window dresser Hollywood. Can you just tell us about designing your very first film, what that was like? <laughs> <laughs> going from, especially going from the horror film set um, to a very, very different 
different type of movie. Well, in the in the meantime, between uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and this, I did do a fair amount of rock videos. Oh, fun. So I, I kind of got my feet a little more wet by... They're, they're very quick shoots, rock videos. There's some concept meetings with the band and then with the director and with the production company. And then within a f- week or so, you're shooting a, a small film and you're seeing what film looks like. So your cost, my costumes and everybody else's work, but for my education was seeing my costumes on film immediately. So I got to see what read and didn't read and what things were over the top that I learned from theater that you really shouldn't do unless you want certain kinds of effect uh, in film. So I, I learned a lot like of that. And I mean, one of my rock videos that I did, which I can't remember what it was. <laughs> I know, I was going to say, anything we've heard of, we might have be familiar um, with. Oh, gosh. No, I, I should have done more research on my rock videos. It's okay. Uh, uh, it got me, got me mannequin. We shot in uh, Gr- the Grace Mansion in Los Angeles, and it was very stylized. It was high fashion and low low fashion. So I brought I, my book in, which that was the last thing I had done, and they liked it. So I got hired for that, and it was my first. It was going to be my first film, and at least it, at the, that point when I got hired, I knew the scope. <laughs> right. You've gotten a really good training, I would say. Yeah. yeah. The scope of what it would do to, what it would take to do a production and how to break down a script. And so I I got it. Now, to say it's high 80s fashion, well, it was the high 80s. I'm going to say, <laughs> I thought the fashion was spot on. <laughs> and do you remember if you were purchasing or making designs for Kim's character? Because I actually have known you for a very long time, and I see, when I start watching your films, I see a lot of some of your personal style in some of these, <laughs> some of these designs. So I'm like, that is that totally could be a Lisa Jensen design. So were you yeah. designing and making stuff, or was it store purchase? It was it was both. It was both. There was so for some of some of the scenes that had to de- be more flamboyant and be not looking like ordinary clothing mm-hmm. or any particular designer. And I'm I. To buy design and to build design, back then I still could find people and I could sew myself and sew those shortcuts to making costumes. I did a lot of sketching and I had a lot of things built. And I had a a company called Muto Little who built a lot of the clothes for both Kim and for the store mannequins that come to life in, in certain of the scenes. And I was able to, with her character and with some of the characters and with Hollywood characters, to take what I like to do, which is exaggerated clothing for characters because they have their own, their own sense of bizarre reality and style. And particularly Hollywood, the character Hollywood. So fun. Yeah. yeah he, was, he was really aghast to work with because anything was game with him. He was playing a flamboyant, crazy person, and I was able to dress him as, as wildly as I wanted to. Yeah, all the fun 1980s fashion that you can imagine yeah. he basically wore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Eccentric 1980s fashion. Like the sunglasses that have like, yeah, that are like pointed on one side and circular on the next. And then like, yeah, all the different colors and, yeah. and overalls and yeah, super yeah. fun. Yeah. And a lot of the stuff was 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 downtown fashion. I mean, there yeah. was just what you could you could get a fair amount of it. And with alterations and dyeing and adding, you know, dyeing and coloring it differently and taking clothes and splitting them apart and adding different pieces to it. So it didn't have to be built from scratch. With Kim's clothes, 
there, again, there was a combination of shopped and built, but a lot of a lot of sketching, a lot of a lot of building, and it yeah. was really what wonderful. department store did you film that in? By the way, and we shot in Wanamaker's in Philadelphia, and. This is my first movie. So I, you know, I'm going, oh, I know how many hours it takes to do what you have to do. And I know I'm not going to sleep for six, eight months. It's just going to be on. And then when we got to Philadelphia, the reality of it hit us is that we could only shoot in Wanamaker's after store closing That's what hours. I was wondering about, because I'm like, there's no way they took an empty building and dressed this. This no. is like an actual department store. It was store. an actual department store that was open during the day. So we get in there. It's we start to crew get ourselves ready at about six o'clock, and we get in there at six thirty. Then we'd start working, oh, and goodness. then we'd we'd work all night long, and we'd be coming out bleary eyed while people were going to work, and then we'd go watch dailies when the days when we used to watch dailies and we'd uh you know kind of get our heads ready for uh going to bed some of us and some of us had to go shopping well i just want to say that this is very much a cult classic and that your work is still cited today i mean kim's motorcycle outfit i like was googling was recently on a 10 most iconic rom-com outfits from the <laughs> 80s list <laughs> outfit she wears when she gets on the motorcycle. And then Andrew McCarthy recently posted this meme. Did I send this to you? No. Um, so the Sex and the City reboot is coming out. Kim Cattrall is not part of the Sex and the City reboot. So there's a picture of the three ladies, sans Kim Cattrall, walking down, <laughs> down New York. And somebody photoshopped Andrew McCarthy from Mannequin carrying Kim Cattrall. <laughs> and, and he says under it, I thought they'd never call. It's just so funny. <laughs> I'm like, that's Lisa's work right there. Still relevant to this very day. <laughs> Um, you went on to do a whole host of films after Mannequin. You did Richie Rich. You did Grumpy Old Men and Grumpier Old Men. Two of actually my favorite movies growing up. Three, actually. I watched Richie Rich a lot, too. Sean and I talk about that. What was it like in Grumpy Old Men and Grumpy Old Men dressing three of comedy's greatest talents? You have Jack Lemmon, you have Walter Matthau, and Burgess Meredith. Yes, yes. Those, that had to have been a hoot. They were, <laughs> they were crazy and wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were who they are. They they are friends. They're enemies. They're old guys. They hate to get dressed. They hate to do try on clothing. Hate fittings. They hate fittings. <laughs> they hate fittings. And they uh they trust the costume designer, but there's a whole protocol process that you do of doing fittings so that the director, the DP, and the producers can all see what everybody's going to be wearing so that they aren't uh, surprised on the day of the shoot. Uh, so th they were they were fun, you know. Yeah. I'm in a hot, stuffy fitting room. You're putting on clothes that they're going to wear at 12 below zero. So, the, you know, there's a little bit of pushing and shoving, but everybody got their clothes and everything was really, yeah. you know, everybody was really happy. But the real... Magic was working with Anne Margaret and mm. Sophia Loren on the two. The, uh, my first movie theater movie was my babysitter took me to Bye Bye Birdie. <laughs> so, wow. So I was working with Anne Margaret. And so that was really, really just amazing because I can see 
the young woman that she was to the mature woman that she plays in this this character, both in her character, but also in the person who is behind the character. And to honor the character and to honor the person at the same time and to honor the delicacy of her age and playing, you know, playing a love interest. And yeah, it just, that was wonderful. And then, then it was, that was really, really, really wonderful. And then, uh, and then Sophia Loren is, you know, everybody's icon, the most amazing person. And she comes from a very European style of movie making, which has a protocol and politeness that I learned a lot from. Of, I, I went to her house to do my first consultation. I met her kids. She looked at all my sketches. She, she, we, di- we just did this very gently, and then we had a meeting after that. And I was actually asked to not take her measurements, uh, that she had a, a dressmaker, that she would take the that this person would take the sketches and build the corset and build the the costumes on top of. So it oh, was just, wow. So it was this really long kind of process. And and luckily that in on this movie we had some time to do that. Mm-hmm. But the thing is is the house that built the costumes hadn't put a tape measure around her for a long time either. <laughs> so that's just always the right the <laughs> This is always um, something you come into probably with any actress you work yes, with, actually. Yes, yeah. and and this I was taking her, I was taking her lead because she is yeah, feel her in, and I'm you know, never gonna say nah nah nah. Yeah. <laughs> so long story short, the clothes were way too small, so some of the fabrics that I had used were had to be thrown away, and we started over with things. But finally, we got a, a rhythm, rhythm with yeah. it, and then when we moved the production, we we prepped in L.A., and then we moved the production to Minnesota to Minneapolis, and then I was on my own, which was great. So I was able to really have more of a, for, especially for the more contemporary non non built clothes, uh, I had a little bit of more of rapport and was able to work with her. But I mean. The, the t- and then the two women working together who are very different styles, very different way of dealing with their characters and themselves. And it was, again, every movie that I work on, there's a movie inside the movie that yeah. I, I think I probably love the movie inside the movie so much, is, which is why I kept working. Yeah. yeah. You're privy to things that maybe the audience is not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and it's just as heartwarming and you know, mm-hmm. you know, in in real time than uh, than a movie can be. So. Yeah, yeah, well, that's really special. Another movie you worked on was George of the Jungle, starring yes. Brendan Fraser in 1997. <laughs> and this is actually where you met your husband, Hollywood makeup artist royalty, Ben Nye Jr. <laughs> Hi, ben. Hi ben. Um, <laughs> What do you remember from that experience? Uh, ben or the movie? Both. <laughs> <laughs> I, I met Ben at a meeting, which was hair, makeup, and costume. Uh, the lead actor, Brendan, and Ben had been Brendan's makeup artist on a number of projects, probably from Brendan's first project, uh, School Ties. So they were they had a good rapport, and, and then with the director and producer. And I just, uh, God, we I guess we just found each other, like, attractive <laughs> <laughs> and interesting. And the way we contributed our information to uh, our meeting— then we left the meeting, then we started prep, and then we both go in our separate corners. But during the course of the movie, we shot at the Hughes Aviation Space in 
Marina Del Rey outside of Los Angeles, where the Spruce Goose was built. So these giant, giant, giant buildings. And we, they built, a, the, the set department built a, a full jungle, jungle set. Jungle, yeah. Huge jungle set. My office was at one corner of the, of the jungle. Ben didn't have an office. He had a trailer outside. So my office was, was on the one end. There was a big space where they trained the two cans to fly on command. So there's a big fan. They fly there. Right next door, uh, we shared a common wall, was the animatronic gorilla. Uh, we had lions that you could hear roar in, outside the set that would roar every morning. We had orangutans and we had elephants. We had Ty the elephant, which... Ben had to make up because uh, because Ty was the wrong color elephant. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, That's so, amazing. So they had to make up this whole giant elephant because it was it was a pink elephant and and, oh and the elephant is an African elephant. So he yeah, so he made it up. But so I would just I would find outside my door of my office in the morning I would find flowers. Oh, cookies. <laughs> in, in fact, it was in the basket of my bicycle because I the set was so big, we'd drive up, ride wow. bicycles from one end to the other so we can get places faster. And I just, it was, I was courted in the most beautiful, gentle way with jungle setting. <laughs> I love it. That's such a romantic backdrop. <laughs> romantic and unexpected backdrop. Yes. Um, I'm assuming at this time you also probably had a full costume department. This one I did have a full okay. costume department. <laughs> now I had people building costumes. I had uh, set costumers and I had a supervisor. And I yes, I had I had many people. And and the, the show was pr- principally all built. All the clothes were, were yeah. mostly built. So, yeah. So, I had a full shop. Yeah. Yeah. On that. Such a fun movie and such a beautiful story since I, of course, know you both <laughs> um, personally. Um, and that's because when you fast forward 10 years, you both have moved to New Mexico. And you and I met on a Kevin Costner movie, my very first film called Swing Vote. in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We went on to do six projects together, including what is probably my personal favorite. I was reflecting on it, but Spy Next Door with Jackie Chan and Amber Valletta was probably my favorite. Jackie Chan was just such a consummate professional who took care of all of us. That was so special. And then also memorable moments, working with Bill Murray on uh, the Megan Fox, Mickey Rourke box office fizzle pastor and play. Um, (laughs) Lisa, I'm going to tell you this, and you might already know this, but one of my great regrets in my film career is turning my cheek when Bill Murray offered to kiss me farewell. (laughs) You were there. You witnessed it. It happened. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, you, yes. But, you know, you were... Oh, you were the muse. You were the every <laughs> fitting. You were. Uh, it, 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 I could. I could just do all of my pushing and pulling and pinning and and try this on, try that on. But Bill Murray was especially mesmerized by you, so it was really Shucks. so perfect. <laughs> you don't have to say that, but thank you. Um, that was really, yeah, that was really special. He's such a fun guy. Yeah. Yeah. I would say him and Jackie Chan, I think out of all the actors we worked together and, and even actresses over that, that time span, um, we had some interesting moments. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're now retired. 
And you and Ben live in this beautiful home in the New Mexico countryside. You throw pots. Now, knowing that you went to school, I had no idea Mm -hmm. um, that back in the day you studied pottery. But you make the most beautiful pots. You're working on your greenhouse. Far from film and television. (laughs) Very, very, very far. (laughs) A whole other podcast, perhaps. But looking back on your incredible career, because we've only touched on very few of the movies you worked on, what are some of your most memorable moments of your film career? And are there any films or costumes in particular that you're most proud of? I think that my all-time favorite, and this is relatively early in my career, but my all-time favorite movie to work on was The Fabulous Baker Boys. Oh. It was a very collaborative. I mean, that's that's a word I use a lot, but it's really important to me. It's where every department uh, and every, every person who's putting their energy into the film seemed to be doing it for themselves and for everyone else and attending, you know, listening to everyone else. It was a time uh, where... I could go to actors' homes to do my first consultations there. I finally got that kind of kind of dialed in to see what background I can discern from their real life that fits into the character and and essentially their persona, both in the film and in their whole career of working in film. And it was a very romantic script. Uh, there was a bit of fantasy that could be mixed in. There were costumey bits and pieces of wannabe singers and performers. And the finale song, the New Year's Eve song, where Michelle Pfeiffer sings on the piano, was just magic. 360 shot, done in one take, perfect, beautiful. It just was amazing, the, the whole thing. It was just astounding, both with how the people work together and and then the product that came from it. Yeah, because as we know, that does not always happen. (laughs) (laughs) All good intentions. (laughs) Um, I also didn't realize you worked on Free Jack with Mick Jagger and Anthony Hopkins. Yes, yes. I mean, talk about Hollywood royalty. Yes, yes. Rock royalty. (laughs) (laughs) So so it it was a very strange script, but. Yeah, but kind of fun, futuristic, <laughs> la, la, la. And sometimes, you, I, you know, movies choose you, you choose movies. My career has been, you know, an interview comes up, something interests me about it. I get the job. If I get the job, then I follow through with it. And when, I, especially when I found out that Mick Jagger, who, of course, since I was first had records. Right. <laughs> <laughs> was such an icon to me. And then to 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 work with him was just amazing. He's uh smaller than I thought. He's he's my height. <laughs> but Most gen- actors are. <laughs> yes. Most rock stars are. <laughs> yeah, and uh but a but a real gentleman, really wonderful to work with. And and uh he hadn't done he's done some acting, but he he, I just watched him work his craft, which is really wonderful. And then Anthony Hopkins was uh, fresh off Silence of the Lambs, and uh, he he knew everybody had seen it. And we had a a fitting room in the basement in Atlanta, Georgia, in the basement of a, of the building that we were renting. And we had our our fitting room was essentially a giant shower room. So it had ceramic walls and a drain on the bottom of it, oh, and it kind of no. echoed. <laughs> and there were three of us in the, our my seamstress, my assistant, and myself were in the fitting room, and and the door closed. And he took 
turns biting each of our faces <laughs> and reciting some of the lines from Silence of the Lamb. And it was, it was, it, we were all like, it, it, t- it took us all aback. And then, of course, he. Oh, this was broke, not solicited. No, just and then he broke character. <laughs> and then he's, then he became the character that he was to play. <laughs> wow. 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 Yeah. And he, again, is a con, he is such a pro. He's so. Oh, Such incredible! Greatest yeah. actors, of yeah. All and he time. was so, yeah. And he was so anxious. He was so excited about working on American films that were not classic theater, too. He was just like <laughs> he was having a really good time. Well, you've had an incredible career, and if anything, it's given you me as a mentor <laughs> <laughs> and a lifelong friend. And, and a I love friend. you. Yes. And thank you so much for joining us on yes. Dress. Yes, this is such a pleasure, and I love you too. <laughs> April, I can honestly say I would not be where I am today without Lisa's friendship and guidance. This really was a gift for me to get to learn so much about her career. Yeah, and you both have so many cool experiences and great stories, and I bet there's more back there somewhere that we will get to (laughs) one day. But I have to say, I'm still thinking about that actress standing on a bag of live eels on the A Nightmare on Elm Street set cast. That is creepy as hell, just saying. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, like the lengths that people go to for their craft. I know. And she was actually in the bag with the eels, which, of course, Lisa talked about. And she actually sent me some photos of it, which I'll post on Instagram because, you know, you kind of have to see it to believe it. Many of you have actually (laughs) watched the film, so you've seen it there. But I was going to say, I've never actually worked on a horror film, but maybe if I had... It would help to demystify them and make that genre of film less terrifying for me. But I don't know. When Lisa started talking about the live maggots and the live eels on the nightmare set, I mean, these are what nightmares are literally and cinematically made of. So I don't know if I could do it. Yeah, same. I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. We wish you all a very happy and safe Halloween this season. May you consider what creepy and crawly films might have inspired your favorite Halloween costumes next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you, so please email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you will always find images accompanying each week's episode. And you can follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. If you have a moment and you would like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we appreciate your support always. And also, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each week. More dress coming your way soon. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.